0: A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many fold and the end is not yet.
1: In August, 1945. President Harry Truman addressed the nation from a ship in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. On the other side of the planet, the U.S. military had just unleashed the most destructive weapon the world had ever seen, the culmination of years of work conducted largely in secret by some of the greatest scientific minds of a generation.
0: It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East.
1: The A-bomb. It brought suffering and devastation to Japan, victory for the Allies, and an end to the Second War to end all wars. And all that scientific work, the research and discovery it took to harness that power, it produced more than just nuclear fission. Ideas born inside the Manhattan Project rippled out from secret labs at Los Alamos and Oak Ridge to universities and industry. They expanded our understanding of physics and the universe, the math we use to describe it. And one of those ideas, as it happens, has come in pretty handy in the fight against gerrymandering. For the News and Observer, this is Monster, a podcast about maps, math, and power in North Carolina, a special series for Under the Dome. I'm Tyler Dukes. This week's episode, math on the front lines. Here's the fundamental problem with metrics. Any metric, really. If you're trying to draw some sort of conclusion with that metric, you need something to compare it to. Six feet, is that tall or short? We need to know the average height of men and women to answer that, which we do or the CDC does at any rate. For men, it's 5 feet 9 inches. For women, about 5 feet 4 inches. So 6 feet would be tall by comparison. That's just one dimension, height. But with gerrymandering, we need multiple dimensions, or measurements, that can help us size up a plan. That might include compactness, that measure of how irregular a shape is, maybe how far over or under target populations the districts are, the number of slit counties or cities, maybe even the partisan breakdown. We can calculate all that for a single map proposal, but without something to compare it all to, there's only so much those measurements can tell us. We need baselines, some way to establish what's normal. We need the map equivalent of a good quality sample of men and women like the CDC has. And instead of one metric like height, we need all the metrics relevant to the maps we care about, Our sample. Now, if we do this right, this sample, this ensemble will take into account all the natural weirdness of a state like North Carolina, the shapes of our borders and coasts that muck with our compactness scores, the self-sorting and polarization that naturally skews us away from that pure proportional representation.
0: It automatically factors in the fact that Democrats live more in the big cities. That we have this weird wedge out to the corner, that we have a historical democratic stronghold in the rural upper eastern corner of the state. It's just that's all in there automatically.
1: That's Jonathan Mattingly, a mathematician at Duke University. He's a fast talker, and he's getting pretty comfortable explaining his work. He's had to do that a lot lately to the public, political scientists and judges ruling on some of the biggest gerrymandering court cases over the past few years. The work of Mattingly and his colleagues was instrumental in convincing courts that the maps North Carolina Republicans drew in the middle of the last decade were extreme partisan gerrymanders. They did it by creating these ensembles, these samples, hundreds and hundreds of maps that tell us what's normal for North Carolina political districts. What they've created is not a universe of every possible map, That number, if you remember, is just way too large. Even in 2021, we really don't have the computing power to draw them all, or even the reduced, but still very, very big number of maps designed to follow all the hard and fast redistricting rules. But there's a difference between very, very big and unknowable, and this is where statistics can help.
0: We're going off the deep end, here we go.
1: Let's start with an easier example and a much smaller number say every restaurant operating in New York City. And let's say we wanted to collect some data about these restaurants, least and most expensive entree, number of tables, hours of operation, that sort of thing. Our goal in the end is to be able to draw some conclusions about New York restaurants in general. Maybe determine whether a specific spot we were thinking of going tonight is a ripoff or too hard to get into. Now it's theoretically possible for us to scour the streets or maybe business listings and call up every single restaurant in the city to gather that data. But that's hard, expensive, and it would take forever. But if we're smart, we can come up with a way to survey enough to be confident that we know something about the broader universe of restaurants without having to visit each one. We're talking about a representative sample. And the key to that sample being truly representative is randomness. But there's a lot of ways to be random, and that methodology matters. One way to do it is with a Markov Chain Monte Carlo algorithm. Just the name might sound a little intimidating, I know. Especially if, like me, you are not a mathematician. But on the basic level, this algorithm is just a set of instructions. Where will I go next based on where I am now? To sample restaurants, Maybe I start at my fantasy midtown Manhattan apartment. I step out my door, and I roll a four-sided die, one side for each cardinal direction, north, south, east, west. I follow that direction, and stop in at the first restaurant I come to. I gather my data, and I roll again. That is random, but it matters where I start. There's bias. So maybe my friend starts at her workplace in Brooklyn, Otherwise, same deal, four-sided die, follow directions. Her method is biased too. Because our rules, our algorithm, depend on our starting point and where we are at any given moment, there's gonna be a subtle pull at the beginning toward my home or her office. But given enough time, both of us will cross over the Brooklyn Bridge and start surveying restaurants far afield from where we began.
0: So we have two completely different ways of walking around Manhattan and checking. If at the end of the day, our numbers start to look the same, then we're starting to think
1: we're getting the truth. So maybe you enlist someone else to help, Mattingly himself, maybe, and he'll gather data a totally different way.
0: And I decide that I'm gonna do something kind of crazy. I'm just gonna keep flagging down Uber drivers when people get in and say, hey, can I get in this car and just go wherever you go and get out? And then I check the restaurants around there at that block and then I jump in another Uber and go somewhere else.
1: But again, there's bias, even though it's random.
0: I'm definitely gonna sample all the restaurants around the airport really, really well. I'm gonna sample all the restaurants around Penn Station really, really well. I may not sample restaurants that are tucked in some neighborhood very well because I may never have an Uber driver that comes near to them,
1: right? All of these paths, these routes from restaurant to restaurant, are Markov chains. The instructions we use for picking those routes, starting from home or work or moving by Uber, are Markov chain Monte Carlo algorithms And each of those algorithms gives us the ability to sample some number of restaurants. But there's another wrinkle here. Suppose we want to prioritize a certain kind of restaurant, and we make that priority, that target, explicit, up front. I'm feeling Italian. Whichever Markov Chain Monte Carlo algorithm we choose, we don't know where the Italian restaurants are. We could just ignore every dice roll where we can't see a sign for lasagna in the distance, but we could get stuck that way. Or we could miss a whole little Italy just waiting for us beyond a row of Starbucks. What we need instead is a nudge. And for that, we're going to need a little post-war math. We'll get to that after a break. This business of rolling dice for a Monte Carlo simulation—it's neither exaggeration nor oversimplification. In the 1940s, scientists of the Manhattan Project were doing just that, literally, to model the random and chaotic movements of neutrons in the atomic bomb. The man who coined the term Monte Carlo method—a physicist at the Los Alamos Laboratory named Nicholas Metropolis—before he died. Metropolis in 1993 sat for an interview with Richard Rhodes, author of several books on the creation of the atomic and hydrogen bombs. Turns out the name Metropolis came up with, an allusion to the then global capital of gambling, was pretty apt.
0: And they were throwing dice to get random numbers because they didn't know what numbers to plug in. That's right. Well, they were trying to throw dice in order to uh, uh, simulate the Monte Carlo approach. And you mean literally throwing dice? Yes, literally throwing dice. I mean, in fact, uh, there would be uh, Everett uh, throwing his dice and using his sly rule to uh, uh, calculate the effects.
1: Metropolis and his colleagues in the post-war period refined the method, which eventually reached the world of statistics. A University of Toronto mathematician named W.K. Hastings made some additional upgrades in 1970. The result, the Metropolis-Hastings algorithm, a method that's now a cornerstone of computational statistics, even machine learning. That algorithm is important to identifying gerrymanders in the same way it's important to our survey of Italian restaurants in New York. The technique imposes soft constraints, nudges, to subtly get us closer to a sample we're looking for. Metropolis-Hastings in our little fantasy scenario can make that four-sided die we're using to navigate magic. Instead of each side being equally likely, every roll adds a little bit of weight to whichever direction smells the strongest of, say, sautéed garlic. As those weights accumulate, turn by turn, I'm pulled inevitably in the direction of this target distribution, my Italian restaurants. It transforms one set of instructions into a slightly different one, You can apply the same concept to map making, but instead of spaghetti and meatballs, your target distribution is equal population, high compactness, minimize county splits. And the instructions for how we draw, just like how we surveyed, can be different. The techniques work fast. You can make a few of these maps yourself on a laptop with a little technical know-how and code released publicly by Harvard political scientist Kosuke Imai
0: these uh, algorithms are trying to sample from the same population, but they have different ways of attacking the same problem. So ideally, each approach, if they are working well, then they should be yielding very similar results.
1: But these methods need to employ Metropolis-Hastings to nudge them towards the things you say you're most interested in, those neutral redistricting criteria.
0: We can't just say any random map. We have to be very specific about what type of maps we are trying to sample from. And so there's a gap between the like sampling algorithm, which often just generates a bunch of random maps of different sizes and different size of districts, and the actual distribution you really want. And what the metropolis Hastings algorithm does is make that correction.
1: The goal isn't to generate one map to rule them all. There's no mathematically best map, just like there's no mathematically best Italian restaurant. There will be bad maps, sure, ones that don't satisfy our rules for population equality, maybe. We can always discard those few. But because we're tracking so many metrics, like how many cities or communities we split up, which maps are better is subjective.
0: Maybe at the end of the day, there's some stuff we didn't write down in our model. Oh. These two are both really good. Oh, but did you see what this one did to the Lumpy Reservation? Oh, did you see what this one did to, you know, Oxford? How it split it off from this other town next door? We should just, this one's better.
1: We all agree, yeah? Yeah, we all agree, okay, fine. The end result is an ensemble, a collection of maps, all different shapes. The total number doesn't have to be in the millions or billions, because by running your map-making instructions, your Markov chain Monte Carlo algorithms, a few different ways for long enough you get measurements that roughly match up. They kind of settle. Because the Metropolis-Hastings algorithm has helped us find the samples we were looking for. And that's good enough for lawyers like Ruth Greenwood to take to court. She's the director of the Harvard Election Law Clinic, and she's litigated some of the same cases that used Mattingly and MI's techniques.
2: We need to say to the judge, look, your question is, are we drawing legal plans? And are we actually getting a random sample? Because if I'm telling you something's an outlier, you need to agree with me that what I've sampled is the bulk of normality.
1: Proving you know what's normal, that's huge. It means you can identify and show when gerrymanders are so extreme, so abnormal, they can never happen by chance. And a funny thing happens. Those maps you generated? they get a little more democratic, small d. They're more responsive to the will of the people. More on that after a break. So you got a bunch of maps. You've applied your Markov chain Monte Carlo algorithms, gotten your representative sample. You can do some relatively simple comparisons like use votes from a past election to see how far a given map is skewed from what's normal. What's normal, though, isn't one answer. We've got a lot of maps, if you remember. It looks like a bell curve, with some outcomes being a lot more likely than others. If your map is way out on the far edge of that bell curve, that says something about how unlikely it is. And remember, this isn't proportional representation. This batch of normal maps has the characteristics of North Carolina baked right in. Self-sorting, polarization, and all. Normal here, it turns out, does skew Republican. But when the group suing over maps drawn by the GOP in 2016 took their argument to the US Supreme Court, they underscored that those maps were way abnormal, an extreme partisan gerrymander. That prompted a challenge from Justice Brett Kavanaugh during arguments in 2019.
2: When you use the word extreme, Uh, That implies a baseline. Extreme compared to what?
0: In this case, it is extreme in comparison to any statistical application of neutral redistricting principles in the context of the political geography of North Carolina.
1: But you can go further than just sussing out how extreme a map is based on the partisan spectrum. You can test it for durability over time,
0: What we'd like is that as that this map helps our democracy, that as the people change their opinion, as they go warm and cold on different ideas, on different political parties, on different approaches to governance, they have a chance to vote and then have the people elected reflect that changing opinion.
1: Assume there's a red wave or a blue wave sentiment that shifts in favor of either political party. You can simulate that by adjusting the votes in each precinct little by little in favor of one side or another. Or you can use the results of several different kinds of elections, specific statewide races that yielded more Democratic votes in one or Republican votes in another. And you can watch how those little changes impact the maps in your ensemble and the map you're evaluating. If your map gets stuck, if simulation after simulation shows almost no change in partisan makeup, no matter how far public opinion shifts, that's a signal of a durable gerrymander. And we saw exactly that in the last decade, in maps drawn by Republicans in North Carolina and Democrats in Maryland.
0: It sounds far-fetched, but what we saw before is we've seen maps that just never changed, not just in North Carolina. In Maryland, too, we saw the same thing. Elections, that the maps are designed essentially
1: to make the outcome of the election a four-violent conclusion. But on the flip side, it turns out that ensemble we created, the one where we just prioritized some set of redistricting criteria, minimize county splits, compactness, so on, those maps do respond to red and blue waves. Not all at once, and there are still plenty of uncompetitive districts, naturally red or blue strongholds that are just a byproduct of our state's politics. But by and large, simulated elections using these maps have real consequences.
0: I didn't say like I'm going to set out to make responsive maps. What I said was if I just take maps that have these properties, I'd seem to end up with maps that are responsive. And so then you're like, well, that's good because that's kind of what I wanted. I wanted a democracy. So I wanted maps that would change the outcome of elections when people change their opinion.
1: Now, unlike our fantasy Manhattan restaurant example, this is not magic. It's not perfect or immune from scrutiny. It's science and in a state of continuous improvement. Wendy Tam Cho is a professor at the University of Illinois. She studied this intersection of redistricting, math, law, and computer science for the past 30 years. And she's been critical of some efforts to quantify gerrymandering that haven't delivered on promises. The efficiency gap, for example, that simple measure of wasted votes.
0: People want to you know, fake gerrymandering, and, and I do too. Um, and I think you need to do it the right way. I think if you you push things that aren't ready for, you know, production, well, uh, it, it makes things worse for, for everyone in the long run.
1: If researchers are careful, thorough, Cho said automated techniques to sample maps can be a way forward.
0: And the, the real trick is not politicizing science I think the science has to be the science, and the science cannot be politicized. And I think with redistricting, that's pretty hard to do.
1: For his part, Mattingly agrees the effort is a work in progress, one that continues to improve. But he says the process doesn't have to be perfect to be useful.
0: There's this continuum from just getting started to doing the best science we can. And, you know, we're always somewhere in the middle.
1: Republican leaders haven't exactly endorsed these math-driven techniques, in a September 2021 interview, State Senate leader Phil Berger was non-committal about whether Mattingly's work might prove useful in the current map-making process.
2: I don't know ultimately whether or not the, those uh, those calculations are going to turn out to, to be supportive or uh, contrary to, to what we end up drawing as far as a map is concerned. Uh, what I do know is that sometimes... Uh, Uh, a simple or even a complex mathematical analysis of human action is not going to give you the right answer.
1: Ultimately, it may not be up to them. Attorneys like Ruth Greenwood have successfully convinced state courts that these techniques can identify the worst abuses of partisan gerrymandering, and they forced lawmakers back to the drawing board as a result. There's complexity in these methods, yes, But like a radar gun in traffic court, they become easier tools to use once the basics are established.
2: But when you see a number that says speed limit 60 and you were going 90, right, you trust that. So the first time you introduce that to a court, you actually have to go through and say, this is sound methodology. Like I have done all these um, practices and tests and I can tell you that when I hold up this speed radar, um, it will give me an accurate representation of how fast that car is going.
1: But what if your car is not going 90 miles an hour? Maybe it's just going five over. These techniques aren't likely to eliminate gerrymandering altogether. Maps still could be skewed to the left or right compared to what's normal. That might be acceptable if the maps are way more responsive or do really well when it comes to other redistricting criteria. That's a legitimate political fight.
2: I think as long as you have the legislature drawing the lines, you can pretty well imagine they're going to be focused on... um, protecting themselves in a political sense. And then it's just a question of can we really stop the outliers, the the versions where you really get no say if you're a voter in the state.
1: Because let's be clear, this is still a political process. By design, state lawmakers have the power. And how they flex that power over the next few weeks, that'll impact the whole country for a decade. And America is watching. That's next time on Monster. Monster is reported and written by me, Tyler Dukes, for the News and Observer. It's produced and edited by Clifton Dowell, with editing and production help from Kathy Clabby, Jordan Schrader, and Davin Coburg. Subscribe to the series and catch up on related redistricting content from the entire Inno team at newsobserver.com slash monster. And to continue supporting this kind of local in-depth journalism, visit Newsobserver.com slash subscribe and consider a digital subscription.